this, that is, Jesus, the great high priest, about this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, and you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God, you need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith towards God, and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do, if God permits. For it is impossible, in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that you would write its truth upon our hearts today. We pray that we would not be dull of hearing and sluggish, but that you would wake us up and help us to be earnest in our desire to grow in you. And Lord, we pray that you would grant that growth, here we are today, Lord. We are before your word. And, uh, and Lord, we know that we grow through your word. That is one of the means of grace. And we pray that we would enjoy that grace today. We would grow in grace in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And Lord, we pray for all who are here today, wherever we are spiritually. We lift each one before you, Lord, and we pray that you would, that you would bring uh, comfort to those who are worrying and troubled, that you would bring assurance to those who doubt, direction to those who, who are not sure. We pray that you would bring salvation to those who are lost. And Lord, we move our prayers out beyond the doors of this church to the world. We pray for the lost. We pray that the, the church would grow, that you would convert sinners to Jesus Christ that people would come to know you in a saving way. Lord, we pray that you would build our church here in our city, county, state, and nation, and to the world. And to that end, Lord, we pray for all of our missionaries, that you would strengthen them as they serve you in foreign lands. We pray that the gospel would go forth through their work, and, Lord, we know that your word will not return void. And, Lord, we pray for those who are not here with us today. 
We pray for those who are sick, for those who are recovering from surgery, for those who have uh, physical issues that are keeping them back. We pray that you would bring healing to them so that they might serve you. And as they recover, Lord, we pray that they would have a greater dependence upon you and even grow in their relationship with you as they depend upon you. And Lord, for those who uh, are, have experienced loss, we pray that you would comfort their grieving souls. And Lord, thank you that we have the freedom today to worship you and to hear your word proclaimed without fear of repercussion. We thank you for this land in which we live, and we pray for it, Lord. And we pray that our leaders would ever walk in the paths of righteousness and justice. And Lord, we pray for those who have experienced tragedy, even this morning, this, even last night, Lord. We pray for those people who experienced this great uh, uh, murderous rampage that went on in Orlando. Lord, we pray that your cause would be furthered by it. And we pray that those perpetrators who have done this great evil would come to justice. And we pray that for all. Uh, we pray for justice for all, Lord. And we look forward to that day when you will bring justice to all. We pray that Christ would return. And we, we know that he will. And we pray as, as the... As John wrote in Revelation, come, Lord Jesus, come. We see the trouble all around us, and, and we know that Christ is the only remedy for it. In the meantime, Lord, may we proclaim Christ. May we live in light of the, the good news of the salvation that he secured in his life and death and resurrection. And may we spread that love and that message to others. And we pray that you would impress it upon our hearts even now as we as we sit under the preaching of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I was watching uh, college softball this week. College softball featured uh, my favorite team, my alma mater, Auburn. Auburn was playing Oklahoma in the championship, best of three series. And so I all of a sudden became interested in women's softball. And uh, the, the first game played early this week, this past week, um, Auburn lost 3-2. to two. It was a close game. The, the tying run uh, was tagged out at the plate to end the game, and Oklahoma won the first game. So they were off to a bad start, and then in game two, in the first two innings, Oklahoma went up 7 to nothing. and I was thinking, oh, my dear, it's not looking good for the Auburn Tigers this time around. Things were looking very bleak. The loss would have ended the series, but Auburn clawed back, and by the fifth inning, they tied it up 7-0, and in the very bottom of the eighth inning, one of the girls hit a grand slam walk-off home run to win 11-7. So you, the, the, the girls were going crazy, and they had all the momentum in the series, and it went to, a, to game three. If you think about that series up to the point that I've just described for you, uh, you know, Auburn didn't begin well, but then they, they, they improved. Things got better for them. And the same is true in the Christian life. The beginning is where we often place much of the emphasis. We, we emphasize embracing Christ, coming to faith in Christ, becoming a Christian. But it is finishing well that is more important. Yes, there must be a beginning, but the ending is what really matters. 
Now, this is the concern of the writer of this letter, uh, this, this letter to the Hebrews. The Hebrews have made a beginning, but things have become shaky in their Christian lives, and they are being tempted to give up on their Christianity and on Christ. And the writer is encouraging them to finish well, to end well, to endure all the way to the end. After all, as Jesus said on numerous occasions, the one who endures to the end is the one who is saved. Now back to the College World Series, I thought that the momentum gained in Game 2 would propel the Auburn Lady Tigers to the championship, but alas, it was not to be. In Game 3, Oklahoma won 2-1, to one, and they became national champions. All those Game 2 heroics for Auburn were for naught. They didn't finish the job. But if you look at it from Oklahoma's perspective, they made a good beginning, Oklahoma did. The middle was rather shaky, but in the end they finished and they hoisted the championship trophy. It's the end that's important, and Oklahoma, much to my dismay, finished well. Congratulations to the Sooners. Now, how can we be sure as Christians that we end well, that we get to the end, because that's really what matters? Well, the first step to having the right end, the, the desirable end, is to have a beginning. We have to have a beginning. There has to be a beginning of the Christian life. How does that begin? Verse 13 mentions the word of righteousness. He's rebuking these Hebrews because they aren't maturing in their faith. And he says, everyone who lives on milk like a little baby is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. That phrase, word of righteousness, is important because it speaks of that which deals with the righteousness of Christ, the only righteousness that we need, that which we have to have that would enable us to have a relationship with God. The message that Christ came, he perfectly kept the law, and he paid the penalty for sin. And how do we respond to that? He is the only way of salvation. That's the word of righteousness. His priestly work, this is, this is what he's talking about. The, Jesus the high priest, the great sacrifice for sin, the one who is who is ever interceding for us and providing the way of salvation for us, representing us before God. How is, have we embraced that? Chapter 6, verse 1, talks about a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. This is the appropriate response to the work of Christ. Have we turned from sin? Are we trusting in Christ? This is how we make a beginning. The first step is to put your faith in Christ. That's where we start. But it's not enough just to... To, to say we have started and put our faith in Christ, that has to be borne out in our lives. There are lots of people who have walked down an aisle and prayed a prayer and their lives were not changed in any way. They're not true believers if there's no fruit. And that's what this passage is talking about. Are, are, is there evidence? Has your life produced any fruit? But yes, before your life can produce fruit, you have to have a beginning. Sinclair Ferguson, uh, in a book I've just read recently called The Whole Christ, says this. He says, salvation becomes ours in Christ and not merely 
through Christ. It's an important distinction, he says. He says, notice the difference in emphasis here. When the benefits are seen as abstractable from the benefactor, the issue becomes, for the preacher, how can I offer these benefits? Such as justification, adoption, sanctification, and so forth. For the hearer, how can I get these benefits into my life? But when it is seen that Christ and his benefits are inseparable and that the latter are not abstractable commodities, the primary question becomes for the preacher, how do I preach Christ himself? And for the hearer, how do I get into Christ? See, that's the the question. Have we made the beginning? Are we united to Christ? Not are we saved Now, did we walk an aisle or pray a prayer? Are we united to Christ? Do we have a relationship with him? Are we married to Christ? Because that's the imagery the Bible uses over and over. Are we in that kind of relationship with Christ? That's how we get the beginning. Now, the second thing that we need to understand in order to end well is that we must endure through the middle. We must have a beginning. Secondly, we must endure through the middle. In the parable of the four soils, Jesus uh, speaks of four different soils. The the cart path, where seed falls, uh, the stony ground, or the rocky ground, and the the, uh, thorny ground, and then, of of course, the good ground. And, And hear how Jesus explains what he's talking about. The sower sows the word, the word of God. And and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. These are people who have no beginning. Even though they may have heard the gospel, know about Jesus, they don't do anything with it and they quickly forget what they've heard. And secondly, Jesus says, these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while, then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. These are the types of people that the the writer of Hebrews is addressing here. The writer of Hebrews is addressing a people who were persecuted for their faith, and they were about to throw it out the window. Because it's gotten difficult. And they didn't have any deep roots into Christ. And they were going to just fade if they didn't get down into Christ. And he goes on. Others are ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. And then finally, those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word, accept it, and bear fruit. Thirty-fold, sixty-fold, hundred-fold. So you'll notice here that three of the four soils, uh, they don't end well. One never even gets begun, but two of them start and they look good, but they don't endure to the end. Spurgeon warned about this. Charles Spurgeon, great Baptist preacher, in the 1800s, in his, in his book, Soul Winner, he says, Do not, therefore, consider that soul winning is or can be secured by the multiplication of baptisms and the swelling of the size of your church, 
What mean these dispatches from the battlefield? Last night, 14 souls were under conviction, 15 were justified, and 8 received full sanctification. I am weary of this public bragging, this counting of unhatched chickens, this exhibition of doubtful spoils. Lay aside such numberings of the people, such idle pretense of certifying in half a minute that which will need the testing of a lifetime. That last phrase is the payoff. We often certify in half a minute. What takes a lifetime to certify? Who's to say that these conversions that we see are not rocky soil Christians or, or uh, among the thorns Christians? It's the one that endures to the end that will be saved. And with this in mind, he gives us, the writer of Hebrews here in this passage, gives us some warnings. First of all, beware of sluggishness. He uses this word sluggishness twice, even though it's not borne out in our English translation. He uses the word at the very beginning of the passage, in the very first verse, and in the very last verse that I read. Verse 11 it's, uh, uh, this is, we have, about this we have much to say. It's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. That word dull means sluggish of hearing. Um, he goes on to describe someone like a baby. Uh, some, some people who have not made any effort at all to come to a deeper understanding of the gospel and how to apply it in life. These are people... Uh, who have identified with the church. Maybe they even come regularly to church and they call themselves Christian, but they're not really growing at all. They're more part of the Christian culture, but they don't really have any kind of relationship with Christ. If we are in a place where we are not hungering to grow in our understanding of the gospel and especially how we live in response to that gospel, then the writer is saying we are in a very dangerous place. He, he tells the people, look, you're, you're like babies. You're living on baby food. You, you're, you know the basics, but you haven't really embraced the basics. You're not building on the basics. He goes on to say in verse 14, Solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Powers of discernment, knowing good from evil, he says. Their powers of discernment trained, that word trained is gymnazo, the word from which we get gymnasium. You've got to train your powers of discernment. You've got to go to the spiritual gym and get those things trained. I saw a guy the other day with one of those shirts that says Lord's Gym on it, and he weighed about 350. And I was like, dude, you shouldn't wear that shirt. That's not a good witness. You don't look like you're physically in I hope he was spiritually in shape, though. You know, maybe he wasn't physically in shape, but he was possibly very spiritually in shape. He certainly wasn't ashamed of his faith. He was wearing it on his shirt. But it notice there it talks about having your powers of discernment trained by constant practice, a habit. He's, he's encouraging these people to look, habitually understand the gospel, grow in your understanding of the gospel, make it a habit to put yourselves in a place where you can grow. 
Go to church. Go to Bible study. Spend time in the Word. Spend time in prayer. Do these things. This is what trains you. This is what helps you become mature. And he says something evil. You know, you learn good from evil. Uh, how does he say it? You have uh, your powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. In Greek, it, it's uh, good from evil is kaku from kalu. So the words only have one letter difference. Kalu is good, kaku is bad. And they're spelled exactly the same except an L and a K. So it's kind of a saying, I guess. It's like you know, knowing something in one these words that was very close together, but conceptually miles apart, good and evil. So he's, he's saying, look, you've got to be trained in order to understand the subtle differences. Because the subtle differences are not so subtle. They very much... Uh, have a great impact in your life, good from evil. Now, you think about babies. Uh, some of you here can think about babies because you have babies. And, you know, it's a great day when those babies learn to crawl. We celebrate it. It's great when they learn to take their first steps. But, man, that's when the work begins. Because those uh, little babies, the little toddlers will go around and they'll stick anything in their mouth. They'll put their hands in places they shouldn't. They'll get into all sorts of trouble because they cannot distinguish what's good for them from what's bad for them. They haven't been trained yet. They're, they're learning and growing. They're just babies. The same is true spiritually. If we're not mature, we'll have no discernment about what is good or bad for us. But it takes some effort on our past. He goes on to say, verse 1, Go on to maturity. Leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. It's better said to press on to maturity. Keep moving forward. Don't stop. And, and don't be confused by leaving behind the elementary doctrine of Christ and all these things. He's not saying leave them behind like you would leave a destination. You know, if you are traveling cross-country... You might leave Biloxi behind and you might go out to California. He's not saying that. He's not saying leave those truths behind and never consider them again and go on to some higher learning. No, he's saying build on them. These are not destinations but foundational truths. Leave them behind in the sense you've built the foundation, now build on top of it. Leave it down there, but it's under there. It's, your, it's the very basis of your faith, but build up on it. And then he goes on to say, we will do this if God permits. That's a very important thing to remember. See, he is rebuking them because they're not growing, but in the same breath he says that God is the one that gives the growth. And it's the same thing. We, we know this concept. If you've had anything to do with plants or children, or yourself growing. You know, we, we, plant, we have plants, we water them, we put them in the appropriate sunshine, but we don't dictate how fast or slow, really, that they grow. They grow like they grow. Uh, I'm excited because uh, Melba here gave me a few plants, and man, they're really growing great. 
And, uh, and I love to see that growth. It's exciting, and it makes me want to water them and take care of them, and I'm really enjoying that. He's talking about, he's using that kind of imagery uh, to describe the Christian life. Look, God is the one that gives the growth, but we have to put ourselves in a position to grow by being watered, cultivated. And so the writer is telling them to plant and water in their own lives, cultivate for deeper and higher growth. You know, if we don't water the plants and if we stick them in the closet, yeah, they're going to die. If you don't go to church, if you don't fellowship with other believers, if you never read your Bible, if you never pray, you're going to be a, a rocky soil Christian. You're going to be a, a, a Christian among the thorns that gets choked out by other concerns or by persecution. Sinclair Ferguson goes on, the Christians who are most focused on their own spiritual, spirituality may give the impression of being the most spiritual, but from the New Testament's point of view, those who have almost forgotten about their own spirituality because their focus is so exclusively on their union with Jesus Christ and what he has accomplished are those who are growing and exhibiting fruitfulness. In other words, don't just study to gain knowledge. Study to gain a relationship with Christ, a deeper relationship with Christ to be united to him, to know him better, to grow in our knowledge of who he is and what he's done. And as we do that, we will grow. We will grow into a deeper relationship. We'll see a change in our lives. So first, first of all, in order to endure through the middle, we need to beware of sluggishness. And secondly, be aware of apostasy. Those who are sluggish and who are not growing he says, are in danger of becoming apostate, of turning away from the Lord. And that's where they were. These people were on the brink. And he says, very stern warning, it is impossible in the case of those, this is verse 4, in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, to do, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. Now, that's a scary passage, uh, but if we look at it across the board, across all of Scripture, we, we know that he's not talking about people who have truly been regenerated. It's a little difficult to understand when he says once been enlightened, that is, they, they have gained knowledge of God, they've heard the gospel, maybe they've been baptized, they've publicly confessed their faith, they have united with the church uh, in early Christian writings. Enlightenment is a word that was, that was used to talk about uh, conversion and baptism. Tasted the heavenly gift. Maybe he's talking about the Lord's Supper there and being participant in the Lord's Supper. Or maybe it's a broad description of apparent conversion. And then shared in the Holy Spirit. They've had some experience with the gifts of the Holy Spirit. They've seen them in action in people's lives even though they have not experienced regeneration themselves and the powers of the age to come and the word of God, uh, signs and wonders that they would have seen in those early days. See, if they, they have experienced these things, these are people who have been along in church, they've seen it all happen for other people, and they've seemed like they were those who were participants in the same things, but they really weren't. 
And now that it's becoming very unpopular for them to be Christians, they're just throwing up their hands and saying, I don't want this anymore. It's too difficult because they never really had it in the first place. And see, when, when you turn and turn away from Christ, it's like they're crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. You have borne the name of Christ. You have identified with him, and now you're turning away from him. It's like you want to kill him again. You're showing that much contempt. That's what the writer is warning them about. If you turn away, that is a contemptible thing to do because you are spitting in the face of the Son of God. And you know the things, you've heard the things that he's done for you. How can you turn away from him? So, see, it's a very, very stern warning. But he's talking about people who are in a position where they're not growing. Maybe they're in the church. They're just not growing. They're not really interested in just in, in doing much of the deeper uh, devotions and, and studies. They're just kind of hanging on. But when it gets tough, they'll be the first to leave. And he gives this picture, land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it. You know, he gives the picture of a field that's had every advantage, the sun and the rain. It produces a crop, great, but if it's just going to produce thorns and thistles, then it's going to be burned. And that's the picture he's saying here. Here are people, he says, don't be those people who don't produce any fruit, who, who, who just... Uh, are part of cultural Christianity and don't have a real, vital, living relationship with the Lord that is producing fruit in the life. Now our verse uh, <clears throat> for this year was Hosea 6 that goes very well along with this passage. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. And that's what he's encouraging the, the people here to do, to press on to know the Lord. He says in verse 11, chapter 6, We desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, there's that word again, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And then he's going to talk about Abraham and how Abraham was given promises. God swore with an oath that he would keep the promises. And Abraham trusted the Lord. And in the end, after a long wait, he received the promises. The same is true for the Christian. It's not how we begin. It's not all about the struggles in the middle. It's how you end that's important. And only those who endure to the end will be saved. And in the meantime, as we wait for the fulfillment, for that hope that we're looking for, let us show earnestness, earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope to the end. Not sluggish. And that word earnestness, to be eager to do something, to, to be ready to expend energy and effort in order to grow, to know the Lord, and to know that hope that we have and to wait patiently for it, and in the meantime serve Him. May the Lord... Make us all champions that we can hoist the trophy at the end. You know, maybe we go down seven runs and come back, but it doesn't matter as long as we win in the end. May the Lord grant us the victory 
we will have it if we put our roots deep down into the only one who can save us, which is Jesus Christ. Let's pray to him now. Father, we thank you for your word, as always. Thank you for how you have uh, encouraged us today uh, with this warning. Lord, forgive us for our sluggishness, our lack of desire for your word, our lack of desire to grow in, in these things. Lord, we grow in knowledge of so many trivial things. And we sometimes expend a lot of effort in things that don't matter. Lord, we pray that we would have discernment to know what's really good for us and what's really bad for us. Lord, may we see your glory and want to know you better. We pray, Lord, that you would change our desires. Help us to lose our desire for the things that, that are idols, for the things that we think are so important and they're not, and they're actually maybe even destroying us. And we pray, Lord, that we would cling to the one good, true thing who is Jesus Christ, the righteous one, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, our great high priest in whose name we pray. Amen.